0: Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, And I am so thrilled today to have a writer, uh, a hijabi model, an influencer, and just a, a phenomenal person, Leah Vernon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I discovered you through your autobiography, Unashamed, Fat, Black, and Muslim, which was freaking brilliant. Um, but you do so much, and most of our listeners probably know you more through your Instagram and your modeling stuff. Mm-hmm. So you are not a typical model, uh, which I love. <laughs> so, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into modeling? Because this, your work is incredible,
1: and I die for your Instagram. Thank you. Uh, it's full of shenanigans all the time. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. I like to. I like to say that I'm a former model. Uh, because I'm just like really super tired of like the fake ass influencers and, you know, the small fat models who've made it and are like, fuck you, bitches you fat bitches. So right now I'm just like, I think I'm, I want to be, you know, I I dip and dabble when I can, but I'm not making plus size modeling my thing anymore. You know, I was used as a token, you know, fat, black, and Muslim. They're like, she checks off all the fucking boxes. And now they kind of kick me off to the side. No one's advocating for me. They use me up, spit me out, and it's okay because I've made my money out of the industry and I've done some things that will probably be in history books at some point as the first pop black, you know, hijabi to do multiple things. And so, yeah, right now I am trying to figure out what is next um, for Leah V that is away from being exceptionally attractive uh, and photogenic. Uh, what is next for her? Like, can she use her mind and her voice? <laughs> I, I
0: love the fact that you, you embrace the, the exceptional attractiveness because in reading your autobiography, it took you a lot of time to get comfortable with the way you look, right? Yeah. Um. So let's talk about what it was like growing up because we are not in a culture that says fat, black, short, Muslim, any of that's okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... Really hard to write that memoir, and it actually wasn't even supposed to be published. Um, it was just me getting all the demons, just purging myself of all the things that the Muslim community had did to me. My mentally ill mom, my never there father, uh, my ex white people, uh just society, fat phobes. I just needed to purge myself of all the negativity because i was holding on to all of that shit and i think when i got divorced it was just like just it all just bubbled over and i felt you know physically ill a lot of times i couldn't even eat it was really bad and so i was like okay what can you do that's free that doesn't cost any money because you don't have any you didn't get any nothing in the divorce settlement this <laughs> zilch so what can you do now to be productive not become bitter and so I started talking about myself and how people affected me. And that's where the memoir came from. And um, yeah, growing up in Detroit, you know, the single mom who, you know, did the best she can, with what she had, you know, body dysmorphia, what the fuck, like eating disorders, what? Excuse me. We got bills to pay. And so that was never a thing. I suffered silently um, and I wish I hadn't on top of that I was homeschooled. So I didn't get a chance to like see what other people were doing or feeling about their bodies. I just know I hated mine. So which led to lots of eating disorders, lots of self-hatred, lots of avoidance of mirrors. So it's a testament to where I'm sitting now. I was like a 35 going on 36 Leo season Um, that I can like look at a mirror now and not think I'm horribly, horribly disgusting. You know, I'm not saying I don't have those days, but it's a lot less now that I've found a community of fat ass bitches And queer people who've taught me that uh, you can do whatever you want in the body you have now.
0: You bring up eating disorders, and we've had a couple of other women on the show who are Black and bigger-bodied. And it's often not even recognized. Like, we think of eating disorders for, like, super skinny white girls. That's who we... How... Was it about trying to get help for any of that? Or did you have to go in and completely tell them, diagnose yourself, tell them this is the help I need? I mean, what was that like to get help around eating disorders?
1: I mean, um, (laughs) there wasn't no help. I mean, I had to thug it out. First of all, I didn't even know what it was growing up. So we didn't know what that was. It was just always be thinner. You know, your family, your mom's telling you, like, don't get too fat because then you won't get hired at a job. Or you know, she had her own eating disorders and stuff, so she was going through her own thing. Um, again, didn't know what it was, just knew that that was the norm: uh, is to eat less and be as thin as possible, so that you can look pretty, fit into the clothes, and get a good job. You know, that that was the thing. And so um, I just yo-yo dieted, starvation. I remember one. I remember one particular time where I uh, worked at Walmart for like a hot second just to get my mom a birthday gift. And I was like, okay, I have a little money. I'm going to buy a ticket to go see my grandma. So I went to my grandma, who's Southern, you know, rest in peace, Grandma Janie. She's a Southerner and, you know, they cook, honey, and they eat. And so I remember getting to her her home and I was um, just like so lightheaded, right? And she's like, honey, are you okay? I was like, no, grandma, I'm hungry. And she made me... Fried shrimp, (laughs) biscuits, and some macaroni and cheese. (laughs) But I was that I was that was peak eating disorder. As when I flew Mm -hmm. on an empty stomach and I was passed out, and my grandma was like, "I'm making you some food." Um, And so, yeah, it's it's been up and down, and like I didn't know about any resources until recently, actually, like in the last couple, like five years or so. So.
0: And for folks out there who may be struggling with it, especially for those of us who do not look like typical people who may have disordered eating, mm-hmm.
1: do you have any advice or or guidance for them at this point? I mean, I think the first piece of advice is always understanding like where it comes from, so always education. A lot of people who have ED don't want to talk about it. Like my one friend definitely has it. Um, and uh, I think maybe my sister um, and with my friend, I'm just she, she'll tell me certain things about food. And I'm like, eh, that kind of sounds like E.D. And she's like, yeah, but like they don't want to put a name to it. because It's like a bad word. Right. Saying you, you might have E.D. or you have it. It's such mm-hmm. a bad words. People don't want to think they're doing it. I eat properly like I nourish my body. How dare you say that? Uh, and so it's it's a stigma around it. So people don't want to combat it. And like, that's how we combat diet culture and ED and negative body stereotypes and shit and image issues. And we're like, hey, this is what it is. And so now I'm going to educate myself on this. The next step would be, um, yeah, the next thing is to like, communicate with others who, who are even going through it or can lend a helping hand. Um, I think having a community around anything is the best way to overcome something or work through something is have community, you know, whether it's ED, a divorce, body image issues, like you need people to be around you who are not going to feed into that negative, that negativity. So if I'm talking about like, Oh my God, like, you know, I need to eat less or I need to do this. Like, you don't need your friend being like, Hey, yes, definitely eat less. Like, you know, no, you need to have somebody be like, please nourish your body when you are hungry. Like, that's my advice to you. (laughs)
0: It's interesting i was having a conversation with another guest on the show the other day um nika shirell for those of you who've been listening this season and nika and i were talking about how much of eating disorders people just kind of look at it and say well it's just the culture that drives that right and what you see in media and everything um but for her and especially for like queer black women there is so much more tied up in that in trauma in family history like there is a lot of things that feed into that And you as you've started to unpack your own issues around food do you find things other than just what you see in the mass media feeding into the, the complexity of ed
1: hmm, that's interesting i've never not i mean i think there's always triggers and traumas and stuff When it comes down to any type of disorders, for me personally, I don't know. I've always felt like food was safety for me. Uh, It's something that I actually enjoy doing. Like I actually really enjoy eating. (laughs) I'm like, yes, this is really great. I love this. I know some people like it stems from like sexual abuse or like other forms of trauma. Um, I didn't necessarily, I didn't have that. So, yeah, I don't think mine really necessarily stems, or at least I'm not aware of. I just really enjoy snacking. I enjoy eating good food. It makes me really happy to have those things. And so I'm going to have those things. (laughs) So So speaking of food that's really
0: good, you recently went to the Jala Festival down in D.C.
1: Yep. How,
0: what, I mean, the, the images you posted looked amazing. How was it to go to that?
1: Yeah. So I went to the Jello Fest and so I'm doing things, I'm turning 36 this week and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to take a mini road trip down to DC. So I randomly on Facebook, uh, what is it like app or whatever the Facebook app, mm-hmm. it just popped up. Cause it knows me. It knows I like african food. I love I love African men. So it was like, hey, Leah, you should come to this. And I'm like, fuck yes. I want to do that Facebook algorithm. So I ended up going and it was so fun. I had to try all the jollof rice, like Ghana- the Ghanaian one, the Nigerian one, like all different parts of like Africa. Uh, and it was amazing. I got to dance and saw, saw the little black kids dancing. It was black excellence all the fucking way. And I met people there, found a hot guy, made up with him, like later on. It was a gr- amazing experience
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. so you you bring up men. And one of the things you cover in your your book extensively is your relationship with your ex-husband. Ew. that was not a positive end. Um, and there's there's so much pressure in in the Muslim community for women to be demure and pure and all of that. So you, you're several years post-divorce now. So where is your relationship with dating and sexuality and all of that as you've started to really come into yourself?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, and I want to write another memoir, because I feel like from the, the time that that book ended till now, a lot of shit has occurred, like a lot. I've lived a lot of life uh, even prior to that book. Like, And I lived triple more life. So I definitely want to write another memoir. I want to talk to my agent about it. Like, should I do this? So people keep asking me, like, where is the, where is the next memoir? Uh, but other than that, yeah, like I definitely, I was you know, I was married at, with him at 17, married at 19, never had any other sexual partners other than him. He was my first. Um, and I had the same dick for a decade, you know, it gets a little tiring, you know? (laughs) Um, and, but that 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 wasn't the reason why I got divorced though, uh, because I was tired of the same dick. But I'm glad I did because now I get to experience different types of dick, which is great. Um, uh, and tongue. So that's great. But as a Muslim woman, it's like very much so you need to um have the least amount of sexual partners, like you need to, you know, be modest and shy and cute, have a Barbie coochie, and it's like I don't have a Barbie coochie. I have an actual, real coochie, and I'd, I'd like to experience what what that means to have one, without the shame of religion. And that's a lot of people be like, "Oh, Leah V, you're um Islamophobic because you are talking a lot of shit about Muslims." I'm like, okay, well, first of all, only a little bit. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm not Islamophobic at all. Like what I'm doing is I'm I'm opening up conversations around religion, women, and shame and what that looks like and what those those you know, these marginalized identities, what they what they look like and what Muslim women experience. And not just Muslim women, but you know, Orthodox Jewish people, Orthodox Christian, what they also experience because we all have the same, like similar shame around sex and wanting pleasure in a relationship or. Speaking our mind, so no, I'm not homophobic. I'm just telling you what it is. And if people want to focus on the good things of something, that's great. I want to focus on the real issues and issues that affect women. And so I'm always gonna have a big mouth. So yes, I date. They don't like it. Most of the men are uh, not my biggest fans because I do what I want and I say what I want and I make out with random guys and um, in their cars, and they're just so upset about it. And I'm like, I'm having fun and I'm not hurting anybody. So yeah. <laughs> And you make a good
0: point that it's not just Islam that has these rules for women; that most religions mm-hmm. have it. And, you know, and for for those of you who've been listening to the show, you know, I have a ton of folks who are recovering evangelicals, recovering Catholics, you know, <laughs> trying yeah. to deal with with all of this. And your book really points out the the double standard in the Islamic community, the way you experienced it churches don't like it when people point out some of the the bad things or the the less desirable aspects of it how has it been trying to find community and a mosque and all of that post autobiography
1: yeah it's really funny how certain like organized religions and groups not just religious groups mm-hmm. like to sweep things under the rug and not have you say things about them but it's like hun how about you not do fucked up things so that we won't have anything to talk about. Let's start there. Like, let's stop with the, you know, the gaslighting, uh, you know, the projecting, like, if you don't want people to talk about things, stop doing fucked up things. I'm talking to myself, too. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that um, it's been interesting. So I will say that I do not necessarily have a Muslim community that I'm attached to, because you know, I live life out loud. I like to twerk and throw my ass in the circle. I like to do things that, you know, a lot of Muslims don't agree with. Um, so they don't want me a part of their community. Um, I've tried, you know, a couple of times to dip and dabble and things like, hi. And they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> so it's just like, but it's funny because like Islam, the religion, the basis of it is community and accepting people as they come. And that's not necessarily how, people have interpreted they feel like it is a club and so that you can't sit with us type mentality because you're not good enough um and i always tell people the most religious people are the worst on the inside uh and that's across the board people that are super religious they are the, some of the worst people and the most evil people i've ever met in my life and that's like i've talked to all religions and they all agree with this and i'm like that's so funny that you're so Close to god and like you're so you're going you're you have a one-way ticket to heaven but you're bad and you're dark and you're evil inside and i call people out all, all the time for that They're and they like i'm like oh my god no but i'm like no you're really evil you should go to hell <laughs> so yeah so right now the community that i fucked with heavy is a queer community of course because they took me in uh i'm not queer people think i am <laughs> i'm just i like to live out loud as a queer person does and um yeah, like the queer community took me in when the Muslim community basically shunned me. And they were like, you are cool and you're crazy and you dress funny. Come over here. And so, you know, they were the first people to take me in as being a weird Muslim girl. Didn't have anywhere to go. And yeah, like most of my friends are, are gay as fuck. Love it to death. I'm an honorary gay. Uh, <laughs> and so... Yeah, I have Muslim friends, but a spot Muslim friends. But I wouldn't say Mm -hmm. I ascribe to any mosque necessarily.
0: So how did you initially connect with the queer community?
1: Art. (laughs) Honestly, art and creativity. Like most, I mean, the best artists are queer people. Like whether they tell you or not, they're queer and they're great artists and they're creative and they like to share their art with the world. And so back in Detroit, I started to dive into what it what it's like to to be a visual artist and 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 a speaker and someone who dresses out loud and somebody with a big mouth who's a fat bitch you know and they were like oh yeah all, all of that we love that shit and I you know one by one I started to understand the queer community because like again I came I came from a very like orthodox Muslim upbringing and so gay was a no no trans definitely a no no like they are not your people we're not doing that you don't do that and so but it was funny when i was little i always be like secretly why and like i you know it's just like i think it was just that that inner thing that some people have of that just why why not like why are they bad why can't we converse with them why can't we be friends with them but of course i never asked cuz you're going to get reprimanded by your parents cuz they want you to think a certain type of way but i always had that why in college and just through young adulthood, like, why is this something that we are like, no, right? And so when I got to the artist scene, I started like seeing things and learning things and hearing their perspectives and how they were shunned by their own families. And I'm like, that shit sounds like me. We have that in common. And um, it, it blossomed from there. <laughs> so, yeah. So you are incredibly
0: creative. You have a master's in fine art and writing. Mm-hmm. And you focus on dystopian fiction. You have several several novels out. What drew you toward that genre of writing?
1: Um, well, I am a nerd. No one knows that because people like to box me into certain, like, you know, multi and I like different shit. Mm-hmm. But my first love has always been sci-fi and dystopian. And when I tell people that, they're like, never got that from you. I'm like, yeah, that's because you're stereotyping. Okay, stop it. You know, black girls can like sci-fi too and nerdy, sh- nerdy shit, anime, all that manga. Like, you know, black girls can like that stuff too. And so, yeah, my first love has always been sci-fi, horror, thriller, adventure stuff like that. So, growing up, I would go. You know, I was homeschooled, so I would ride my bike after homeschool was done to the, the local library because I'm a nerd baby. And baby Leah V would sit there for hours, ingesting all the the R.L. Stein and the C.S. Lewis the Harry Potter series, like all these things. The one thing I didn't see was Black people in the future or in these magical, mystical lands. Black people were never the heroine. We were the the side characters, if that. And so as a young girl, I was like, well, I want to write stuff because I want to look like a heroine. Like, I want to be the hero in a story. And I want to see myself in the future. So I wrote my first dystopian novel at 17 during college courses. Uh, In between taking notes, I would write chapters and uh, I wrote two books, one at 17 and then one at 19 or 20. They both never got published because nobody wanted it. And I was like, I'm going to go get a master's and, um, well, two master's and creative writing and publishing and then see if I can hone my skills so that I can write another dystopian novel. I wrote a third dystopian novel. They still didn't want it. So then I broke down. So I spent all my money on another master's. And I got divorced. And that's when I wrote my memoir. So, like, the memoir was not my first book, technically. Um, it was the fourth book. So, yeah, but I love this story.
0: In the memoir, you talk about, so you've been writing these fantasies, at least in your head, before they made it onto paper, where you were the hero of the story. But a lot of them, at least what you point out in, in the memoir, is that you were white. When did you change that and embrace the Blackness um, in you and make that the, the part of the hero that comes to the fore?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely had an obsession with white people growing up because that was purity, that was um, elevating, right? That was That's every Black kid's dream, well, when I was younger and probably still now, that you know. The black doll white doll thing like the black kids are going to pick the white doll because we've been in the grain to think that white people are better inherently better than us farther than us and everything and that's just not the case statistically and historically um so again i was never taught that um i grew up watching skinny white girls win on tv like clueless like i was obsessed with clueless and Gwen Stefani from no doubt i was obsessed with Paris Hilton and like Lizzie Lohan and all these skinny white girls were always winning There's never a fat black Muslim, anything winning or a fat woman doing any type of winning. So of course you want to attribute and become what is what you think and perceive as greatness. And so that happened. That was like a long, long time. And the only reason like I started being more pro black actually in college, because before that, I never knew like black people, white people. I never knew that was like a thing until college. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing how the white kids were living versus me. And I remember being in class and mind you, I was super poor. Uh, I didn't even have money to buy toothpaste, maxi pads, nothing. I was very, very poor. Um, no family support. And so this white girl was talking to her friends and she was like, yeah, I'm taking the summer off and I'm going to, going to go to um, take the yacht, you know, over the summer and just like tour France. And, and I'm like, wait, so you guys are living really good. Like I don't have a father. My mom is struggling. I don't have any money. And I'm taking like 16 credits at a community college and you're fucking touring France. And at that point, I'm like, we are not the same. We are not the fucking same. And I start to research and follow more black activists and read for myself. And I'm like, Oh, so I was conditioned to want to be like this. And we never started at the same, fin- at the same, same starting line. And I started to become very upset and, and um, I've been able to like soften up a little bit, but I'm still upset uh, when I see injustices like that and how that, you know, as, because I am born black, that I am not at the same start line as somebody who was born white. I think that's very absurd. And um yeah, I'm an angry black bitch because of it. Uh, which is also an essay in my <laughs> in my memoir, The Angry Black Bitch, because that's what I am.
0: <laughs> well, I I did love that. That was on the question to, to one of the questions to ask because, especially uh, black women and, and folks who listen, know I have this conversation with a lot of black women. Is there's so much pressure to not be angry and not be perceived as angry because, as a white woman. I can pull shit off and not be be seen as justified, whereas if I was Black, it would be the angry Black woman. And so you talk about finally starting to let her out. What gave you the freedom to say, this is actually okay, and she's got a point?
1: Right. Yeah. So I let my angry Black bitch out, Uh, definitely, I would say a little bit in college, but she mainly came out mostly, I think, the end of my marriage, because that was like the end all be all, you know, like the crumbling of a city. Uh, everything I thought was real was fake, you know, and and the Band-Aid and facade was ripped off. And I was like, yeah, I don't give a fuck uh, about shit. And um, from here on out, I would never give a fuck about shit. And I come first. And... um yeah, I'm fat, but I'm going to be the fattest, most baddest, most amazing, most big mouth bitch ever. And I hope someone has some shit to say about it so I can go off on them. And <laughs> after that, yeah, I think it was at, at that point. So probably like mid, no, I was in mid twenties. I think it was definitely like maybe late twenties. Uh, and I wish I had this mentality younger because a lot of people would have been on fire right now. Like literally, because I let a lot of shit slide because I didn't want to be seen as the angry black woman, right? You ask a question, you're angry. You, you know, raise a point. You're aggressive. You know, anything you say and do will be held against you in a court of law. It's very much so like walking on eggshells. That's what it's like to be black uh, a lot of times. And so I no longer want to walk on eggshells with anybody, not the Muslim community, not the fat phobic community, not the white people. So it was like, you're going to get what you get. And, um, That's
0: that's the fuck it. And repressing that level of of justified anger has impacts on the body, right? You you can only hold that shit in for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, As anybody who's been real angry for a long time knows, as you come to terms with with the inner angry black bitch and allowed her to get out, Mm -hmm. how has it changed your
1: relationship with your own body? Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. I'm just like, you know, even like, you know, like during sex, like, you know how you're just like, oh, I'm gonna cover this up, cover my fupa up, or like, no, no, no. All the clothes are getting ripped off. And you're gonna see the fupa, uh, you're gonna see the the cellulite, you're gonna see double chin, uh, you might see some hair. I don't know, it depends if I want to shave or not. Whatever you see is what you're gonna see, and what you're gonna get is what you're gonna get. So it's very much so like. And I understand with that mentality, people are going to really, really hate you and hate your guts and wish the worst upon you, or they're going to love the fuck out of you. And so I've been blessed to be able to sift through the bullshit and see who wants to, to know me for clout or who wants to get to know me because they hate me so much. they have to be next to me. Like, you know, so I know what it is. And I'm like, please bitch be gone. Like, we're not doing this right now, I don't like your vibe and. Like love this for you, but you can't be in my circle. And I have people who I absolutely adore who would take a bullet for me if necessary. Uh, And so, yeah, like you just come to a point where you're just like, yeah, no. And and when I want to be angry, I'm gonna be fucking angry. Um, I'm not gonna be a bully about it. But if I if I have distaste in something, something annoys me, you're gonna know it, and that's all there is to it. And I think that that's so freeing, especially because my mom was able to do that. Or her mom or her mother, they weren't able to do that. They had to keep it all inside, and I saw the downfall of them having to do that and carry everything on their fucking backs. And so now, for for my ancestors, I'm unpacking, and if that's if that means being angry, so be it.
0: Well, and you bring up family. You also have sisters. So as you've blossomed and really come into your own voice, what impact has that had on on your siblings?
1: Not so good. <laughs> so I will say that. Um, so on my dad's side, there's unlimited children because he's a whore uh, and not a not a whore in a good way. You know, like there's good whores, there's bad whores. He's the, the worst of whores. He basically went from state to state having children with women and leaving them. So this is the kind of person he is. He's also like not a good person and not a good father um, to most of his kids. So he has like 10 to 15 kids. We don't know how many it is. So I know a couple of them. So we, you know, chit chat once in a while. We're not like close, close because, you know, we didn't grow up together. Um, so on my mom's side, I have four siblings, two brothers and two sisters. I only speak to one of them uh, and we grew up together. And um, with one I talk to, I don't necessarily think she understands why I need to necessarily tell all my business on the Internet. Mind you, there's a seven year gap. So she's 42. So, you know, in that age range. They like to keep it modest, They have like to keep it, everything secret, everything stays in the family. I am not like that. And so I do think that she struggles with that sometimes, but I think overall she's supportive. She might not understand what I'm doing or what I'm saying or why I'm saying it, but she supports it and <laughs> she wants me to be happy. And she wants me to speak my truth. Uh, the other siblings Yeah, no, I don't think they really understand or get it. Uh, And they also like to, uh, some of them like to enable my mother, who is very toxic. So that was a big blowout. So, yeah, I wish them the best, but I can't be around people who don't have accountability.
0: How was moving to New York and out of that, close that you know, the physical proximity to family, uh, did that make a difference in your ability to speak out and really be who you want to be? Or do you still feel okay going and like doing readings in Detroit?
1: Yeah. So it was funny because I did an interview for NPR (laughs) when my memoir came out and it definitely played in the city that my mom lived in. So I'm sure she heard it. And they kept wanting to like hyper-focus on her. Why? Mm -hmm. I do not know. Uh, I think they tried to make her seem like she was, worse than she was. I'm not saying she wasn't, but I tried to say, answer the questions in a way that says she was a black mother, single mother. She, you know, she did the best she could. Was there a situation that we definitely shouldn't have been in? For sure. Does she have no accountability? For sure. But she's not an evil, she's not, she's not an inherently evil person. She's mentally ill. She's traumatized and she probably needs mental health, I um, mental help. And so, you know, um, they just kept hyper-focusing on my mother and making her out to be a bad guy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to hear this. And I'm sure she did. She probably was upset, um, which prompted her to call my publisher and complain. Yeah. And so that hurt me really bad because we hadn't talked in two years, but you called my publisher to complain about what was in my book instead of talking to your own fucking daughter. That's either here nor there. I do think that writing the memoir... First of all, I didn't really go as hard and go into depth about people who really like what they really, really did. Like even my friend read the memoir. She's like, you went really nice on your ex and your mother because the stuff that I know could have been in the book and you didn't. So, you know, my mom doesn't give me credit for still protecting her her in some way, which makes me upset because like, bitch, I could have told you all your business, but I chose to be nice. And I didn't tell your business, um, but I do feel like it was easier for me to write the memoir because we weren't really on talking terms. Um, have I done readings in Detroit? Yes. Have people probably had issues with it? Probably. But I think for the most part, the community in Detroit is, you know, I'm the one in Detroit who's like had all these books and like, you know, I still read Detroit. So I'm sure they're proud of me, um, but I don't feel like, oh, I can't go to Detroit and do readings or something like that. Like, no, if they don't like my, what I'm talking about, then they can... Make a rebuttal, memoir, and talk shit about me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. So you talk about not putting everybody's shit out there. And as somebody who reads a lot of memoirs, you can kind of tell you're, you're buffering, especially around. There's certain people, your mom, your your ex, where you know there's something deeper there and didn't put it out. Um, was some of that decision based around safety? Because you have not always been physically safe around certain people. Uh,
1: I don't necessarily think it was safety. It was just like, I wanted the memoir to be about me. And if you happened to just be around me or affected me in a certain way, um, I was going to add you in there. I was married to him for a decade. So of course, that's going to be a large part of my story. Um, and my mom, of course, she's my mom. I wanted it to be focused on me and I wanted to be the central character, you know, instead of like putting everybody, I didn't want it to be a tell all, you know, like, Oh, I'm just going to tell everybody's fucking business. Cause I'm angry. No, if I'm going to tell a story, it's going to be productive. It's going to be helpful. And so will I tell certain stories in a, in a future memoir? Probably. Well, I, would it be a tell-all? Absolutely not. Because my, my job as a memoirist and a writer is never to just tell all your business for shock value. Like, I wasn't going for shock value with this book. I was going for raw, genuine, whatever fits into the narrative at this moment is what I'm going to say. Um, I have read memoirs, though, that were super buffered. I don't necessarily think mine is buffered. I just feel like I didn't go into depth about certain situations because we didn't have the time or the space for it. And also, it just wasn't necessary at the time. So...
0: So you had never intended to be a nonfiction writer, right? absolutely. Uh, you talk in in the epilogue of the, of the book that you're in, in when you're going through school for your your MFA in writing that your professor was encouraging you to to write nonfiction. What was the desire to avoid nonfiction writing for a period of time?
1: Well, I never read nonfiction growing up like that. It was just like more for schoolwork. So I didn't think it was fun. Uh, also, I think that I had built a alternate reality in which I made the rules. And in you know nonfiction and memoir, you don't make the rules, really. Or at the time, I didn't make the rules. I um, also didn't want to out my mother. I didn't want to out myself. Um, I didn't want to out the Muslim community. So I just... Didn't feel like answering questions about it or talking about it. I just wanted to create my own characters. I was a boss. I'm the God, you know, I'm the narrator. And like, I get to make the fucking decisions. Like life doesn't happen, you know, to me. I make life happen. And so that's why I was very dead set against nonfiction memoir because I just didn't want to embarrass myself.
0: Totally understandable. You do have a fiction work that's just come out. It's the second in a series. You want to talk about this this universe and this book that's come
1: out? Uh, yeah. So uh, um, it's a duology, which I didn't know was a word until recently. <laughs> it's a duology. It's uh, multicultural dystopian. If you like Hunger Games, uh, like movies like that, where it's set in the future. And you like raw and gritty things, you'll like it. Uh, so a lot of people are. I'm shocked that a lot of white people aren't upset about this book. I was hoping to get some Trumpers, you know, involved in it so that they can like boost the sales, but it hasn't happened. I guess they've learned to kind of pipe down on some topics. But yeah, in this few fut- in this in this book, so the first one is the union, the second one is the Descent, and but basically it follows the life of a mixed girl. She's a she's black and white. Um, she is called an impure. Because you know, a thousand years in the future, uh, black elites have enslaved, enslaved white people. And uh they've cut off the north and south of the United States. And they have the indigenous people living on one side, and then black elites who enslave white people living in the south. And, And so, yeah, basically it's a story about um sex work and two young girls who are trying to find their way in this universe, um, where basically history has been turned on its head, you know, instead of like, you know, whites enslaving us, how would it feel if they were enslaved? And so a lot of white people who've read it have, have given me really great reviews. Some of them were like, this is stupid. I'm like, yeah, because it shows what it's like to be enslaved. It's not fun. Okay. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not moral. And so in my book, there's really no, there's, it's, it's this, Thin line between who's the bad guy and the good guy. I love a good story where it's just like you, as a reader, are taken on a ride. You're shaken up a little bit, and you have to figure out where do your morals lie. Are these black people justified for enslaving white people because they did it to them, or are you going to side with the white tribe who is just like we need to get back on top? So it's 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 a mind fuck. And I think it's a, you know, it took a lot for me to write both the books. It almost took me off the game because writing books is not easily easy. And I went through a sexual assault on the second book. And so it was very hard to finish it. And so I, I think there are two great works of art that create lots of conversation on race and class, um, but it's also fashionable. It's also sexy and it's it's a wild ride.
0: One of the things that's come up on the show with other dystopian novel writers we've had on Gretchen Filker, Martin and Meg Ellison specifically is the role of fatness in the future. Where mm. do you see in in the universes you create where is where are the fat characters? What's the role of fatness in our our future?
1: Yeah. so I'm very ashamed that the first book I was not when I, I wrote the first book, like eight or eight years ago. So I wasn't super into the fat positive community. So what's killing me is that people are reading this book and there's, there's like one fat character in it. Um, but she's a little bit stereotypical and she was written. I think she's great though. Like I would actually play her cause I love a good villain. I'd actually play her uh, if they make it into a movie. So in book two, I really gone for uh, making it more inclusive because now I know better, you do better, right? And so, fatness in this universe is wanted; it's loved. The curvier, the better. Uh, if you are, you know, fat plus size, you are seen as elite. And so, um, yeah, I've, I definitely made that a uh, more note in in book two with plus size characters. So,
0: you you brought up that you were sexually assaulted in August when you were working on this which made it hard you recently disclosed that on instagram and a lot of details what led to i mean that that takes a level of strength and power that's really hard for all of us who've been sexually assaulted you know how hard it is to talk about what led you to the decision to put it out there um and let people know what had happened
1: Cause I knew that, you know, as like a black woman who had been assaulted in a different country that probably doesn't really give a fuck about women, their own women. So I will they give a fuck about you. I came in there with a sense of arrogance. Like these people are gonna help me because they are the government, they are the police, they 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 have American tourists, like they know how this works. We are not in America, because America plays. Black victims all the time too. So for me to think that another country would be on my side was foolish. Um, and so I was very upset. I reached out to all the Turkish embassy, everything, hired a lawyer. They have they he probably still works there. Um, and this happened, I think we're coming up on on a year because it happened the week after my birthday. So in two weeks will be a year into you know the assault. And so I was upset. Because nobody cared, and so I was like, "Well, I'm just gonna do it for the team and put all that shit out there." His name, the spa's name, and if he doesn't get convicted or doesn't get picked up, which it didn't, because no one cares about fat you know, assault victims. Then at least I know that somewhere, if they Google this man's name or if they Google the spa, my shit is gonna come up. And I think that that was very interesting. And I got so many messages um, from people saying that they had been assaulted too. I mean, like. CEOs and big influencers, just to the moms in Wisconsin, people inboxing is like I was also assaulted at a spot. I was also assaulted and didn't know what happened, and I never said anything. And thank you for saying something because that means a lot. And so even even though I'm not getting justice per se, because he's gonna just go around being his disgusting self, um, I know that I did my part and I did the most I could to get justice. And whatever happens to him, that's just gonna be in the universe at this point. Did it change anything
0: for you to put it out there from like the day before when you're thinking about it and you're still dealing with you know anything post assault to the day or two after was there did you
1: notice any shift uh, in yourself in, in speaking out? um I felt like I would feel some kind of way by keeping it a secret because my life is just so open. And I'm like, this is something that needs to be told. Like, I need to speak my truth. Like, I'm a writer, you know? It feels good to release things, even if just a little bit, just to, like, lift it off of your shoulders. Um, and by releasing it and having this, the support that I did was amazing. And I hope all the good vibes and juju and prayers, I hope that it, it, it works in my favor. And he's suffering right now because that's what he deserves. And it was funny because at first when it happened, I didn't want to get him in trouble. That was my concern when it first happened. It was like, well, I don't want him to get fired or get in trouble or anything. I'm just letting you guys know. And then I was like, wait a minute. He just sexually assaulted you. And I had to like, I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. But that was literally my first, I don't want him to lose his job or get in trouble because maybe he's supporting his fan. Like this whole situation that had nothing to do with me. And so it was definitely a mind fuck. But it's just very interesting how people are like, oh, tell your story, like fight back, say something, call the police, hire a lawyer. You do all these things and people still don't care or believe you. So it's like, you know, people don't know what they want. But I know for the most part, they don't want the truth. Um, And I also got some backlash too. This one guy emailed me this whole long email about, uh, I deserved it. Good on him because I show my body probably enticed him, literally went through my website email to email me a whole thing. And I'm like, and I screenshotted it, but I was like, I'm not going to post this. I'm not going to get going to give him any type of play because you're so disgusting saying that someone deserves sexual assault. People are very fucked up. Um, and I think that that showed like how fucked up humanity was or how fucked up a lot of these cishet men are, unfortunately, so.
0: Well, and it's one thing you talk about in the memoir um, is the amount of hate that you get on on social media. And it's a lot to friggin' deal with, right? How do you keep your sanity when people are piling on? Because the trolls are out there and they're in their basements with plenty of time.
1: Always a basement. Always a basement. It's got to be a basement. You know, that's their basement layer with internet. Uh so they can talk shit all day and then uh you know just crusty socks laying around because they have no just in sales, just all in sales. Yeah, I usually do a couple things when I get trolls. It's just like I let them rock. Cause sometimes it should be funny, honestly. I'm like, if you if you have a good, if you have a good fat joke, I'm gonna laugh at that shit because you thought about that shit. So I'm gonna give you your kudos if it's funny as fuck. Most of the time it's not funny. Not original, just some shit that everyone says. Like, oh, you're a cow. Ooh. Like, okay, that's fine. And I have a cow print phone case, uh, and I have a cow print wall accent wall, and a cow print. Uh, I have lots of cow print in my house because I'm like, I'm gonna embrace this. Cows are great. So they're beautiful. They don't bother people. You know, they're just grazing, just chilling. You know, they're very sweet, gentle, kind hearted. So I love cows. So like, you know. You say stuff like that. I'm like, come on, bro. Like, get get a fucking life. We, I, I know you want to fuck a fat bitch. Stop. Because, like, why are you so upset? You're so upset. Uh, then I have the other ones that just really irritating. So I just kind of like delete them or post them so my followers can attack them. Uh, which they do. Like, my followers have gotten people shut down before. They've, like, reported pages and got pages shut down. So I'm like, hey, fresh meat. Get them, guys. This is a free for all. And I remember one time I tried to post a hate comment. And I blocked out the name and a couple of my followers are like, why did you block out the name? I was like, oh, cause I don't want you guys like, I don't know, attacking the person. And she's like, well, if they have the audacity to openly comment on your page, some stupid shit, then they need to have the audacity to sit there and take this, 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 this beating. And I'm like, oh, okay. So when I post people's nonsense, I never block out the name anymore. So thank you to whoever follower that was who read me to filth and got me fucking right. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. What's next for you?
1: So right now it's not looking good. (laughs) Because like, you know, um, inflation and um, the modeling industry is kind of dried up for me right now. Like I haven't modeled. I modeled one time and like it had been a year since I got in a modeling gig. Like all the influencer gigs uh, dried up. The algorithm on Instagram is fucked. Uh, And like TikTok is too hard. I can't be doing the TikTok dances and shit. I just, I can't do the TikTok dances or the asking questions on the streets. So I'm just in this, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. I'm in this conundrum of like, okay, like, so what is next for you? So I've been doing passion projects. So I started Tea with Leah V, which is my messy ass podcast, where I have my friends who are ridiculous. Um, they're either fat or queer or black. And I have them on the show and I ask them about their coochie ratings or about orgasms or just like fat phobia in the industry. So Tea with Leah V has been like all me, all my money, all my equipment. I'm the editor and the marketer, the host, all that shit. So it's all me. Uh, so it's been doing really well. Like I've been getting a lot, like hundreds mm-hmm. of like streams every day. And I'm like, oh, wow, people like to listen to podcasts and hear me talk about my coochie. Uh, yeah, so that is something that I'm doing. Another passion project, I wrote a script over the summer. And I have a producer who's a friend and she thinks that it has some, it's good. And so we are, yeah, editing it right now and preparing it for when the strikes are over to shop it around. Um, it's amazing script. that has six episodes. I'm the main character, of course, because I'm a Leo. It's a mix between Rami and uh, insecure and Shrill. So it's very ridiculous um very sex positive very body positive it's just a fat bitch living her life in new york city you know and i think that that is going to be cool if that ever gets made you know fingers crossed and all the good juju and um everything so that can get made and yeah and and i think i want to write another memoir so that would be my thing to do next if i can figure out some some income stuff is to sit down and write a memoir
0: that's excellent and if people want to find your works, find your podcast, plug all the things.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, my podcast is called Tea with Leah V. It's available on Podbean and Apple Podcasts for now. And then I have my website, com where you can find like the books and the podcast and Instagram. And of course, I'm on Insta talking shit and sharing my dating, uh <laughs> my dating stories. Uh, at L. Vernon 2000.
0: And listeners, we will have all of those links and more on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy, happy birthday. Thank I hope you. you have a blowout celebration in New York. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and now, a moment of gratitude.
1: Um, I'm grateful for, honestly, uh, myself. <laughs> what a Leo thing to say. I'm grateful for myself, mostly baby Leah V, because she got me t- She got me here. Uh, I feel like without her, I would not be sitting here right now without asking why or asking questions and never taking no for an answer. I would not be sitting here right now. So I'm definitely grateful for her perseverance and her um, ability to work through the ED and work through the bullshit and all the no's and the you'll nevers and who do you think you are to be sitting here right now. I'm also grateful for um, my community and my sisters and brothers out there who are just like amazing. My online community, just everybody who fucks with me, I'm grateful for you for having me on your podcast. um, Everybody else who's, you know, reached uh, back out and scheduled podcast interviews with me to hear me talk shit about uh thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for, for good human beings. <laughs>
0: Fat Chicks listeners, this is Auntie Vice. If you like listening to the show, especially the ones with BDSM and kink educators, I have a package for you I'm promoting this week only. Running from this Tuesday, August 16th, to next Wednesday, August 23rd, you can get the kink bundle from Dom Sub Living, which is a great site to check out on its own, over $1,000 worth of books, trainings, videos, and other materials from BDSM Vetted Educators and Coaches for just $99. I'll have the link in the show notes and on the Fast Chicks page. Thanks for checking us out. at FatChicksOnTop.com